This is what the Lord says. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. I'm going to pray for us one more time. Father, you have an abundance of grace and strength that as you call us to a perfect standard of holiness that is demonstrated in your Son, you can work this in us. So we ask for that grace. We ask for that grace to obey, to come underneath our Lord and Savior, that your Spirit would give us strength to do this, and to give us grace to receive your word, to understand it correctly, and to obey it, to honor and praise you in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, earlier this week, we were doing devotions uh, as a family one night, and we were going through Daniel chapter 1, talking about how Daniel and the people of Judah had gone into exile in Babylon. And during the time, uh, Daniel and his friends decided they were going to just eat vegetables and water. And the, the official over the court where they were a part of the surprise, he's worried they're going to get in, or that he's going to get in trouble because they're not going to be healthy from not eating all the food that's available to the other people who are part of the court. And you know the result. Daniel's friends end up being healthier and, and more fit than the other young men that are around them. So trying to drive home the point for my little boys, I asked one of them, where does our strength come from? And I, I think he was picking up on the, the food theme in the story. And he said, well, our, our, our strength comes from cows. These cows obviously are the best food source that we have. So I, he's thinking rightly, at least in part. <laughs> But I thought maybe I can get him to think a little bit further of, of, about the point and we can get to, to the real core and, and foundation of the matter. So I said, okay, where do cows get their strength? Without skipping a beat. Well, cows get their strength from the barn. <laughs> we, can, we can lose track of God. We can, we can lose track of the one who is our strength. We can lose track of the one who calls us to obey. We can lose track of the one we are supposed to be pleasing in all matters of our life. But we need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant to obey God, and we have to know that he will soon judge. And the main point we're going to see as we go through the last part here of Romans 13 is that now is the time to put on Christ and wage war against our sin. Now is the time to put on Christ and wage war against our sin. We've, we've covered a lot of exhortations here uh, that are all tied together Romans chapters 12 and 13, going back to chapter 12, Paul gives this command to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he's laid out that we are to, to render worship to God with all that we are in full holiness, and then ex explain what that's going to look like in action. It's to not be conformed to, to the ways of the world, but instead it is to Love and serve the church, to use our giftings in selflessness to build up God's people around us. Additionally, as we interact with the unbelieving world, we are to love and bless even those who would otherwise persecute us and oppose us. 
And that goes even so deep as for us to obey and submit to the government and to pay our taxes and to do so as we looked uh, in, a, in a manner that is joyful so as to not bring any reproach on Christ. And this is all of these explanations of, of what it means to render worship to God as we interact with others is summed up in what we looked at last week. But this is how we love our neighbor as ourselves. This is how we fulfill the law as we follow the example and obey the commands of the one who has fulfilled the law in and of himself, Jesus Christ. So that brings us here to this, this last section of Romans chapter 13. So Paul says in verse 11, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. When, when Paul says, besides this, Certainly, I think he has in mind what he's just talked about with loving your neighbor as yourself. But when we're looking at the context there, that is part of everything that he's laid out starting in chapter 12. Uh, that we, This is part of offering our bodies, offering our entire selves as a living sacrifice to God. So when he says beside this, he's saying everything that you're doing here, everything you're doing in worshiping God, loving, loving the church, blessing those who persecute you, submitting to the government, loving your neighbor as yourself. Besides this, you have to do this with an awareness of the moment you're living. We have to, to, to know what is going on at this moment. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. We live in a circumstance where there's a present darkness, a, a, a night that is around us that is filled with evil works. There's an evil way of living that is in the unbelieving world surrounding us that is contrary to everything Paul has said in chapters 12 and 13. He said to, to render worship to God. Well, the, the propensity of the world, going back to chapter 1, is to worship idols, to worship the, the creature rather than the creator. The propensity of the world is not to love the people of God but to oppose the people of God. Their, their propensity is, when they are mistreated, to seek vengeance, to to Return evil for evil. They they don't have an idea of what to do with the government, let alone to submit to the government. And they certainly are not seeking to love their neighbors as themselves. So Paul is calling us to be aware of the moment. And part of that moment is that we would not get sucked into the way of living that might be around us, to not get caught up in a stupor so that we would act like we are asleep, that we are walking in darkness. So he says to wake from sleep. And, and that... That word wake, I don't think that refers to us being saved. He's already said earlier in the epistle that he and his audience were saved. He says that in chapter 8, uh, verse 24. So it's not about being saved. Um, but to, to kind of illustrate what he is getting at, if you're a parent, you've probably dealt with this more times than you would like to, but it, you sometimes have a circumstance. Your child's playing with another child, and they're in the course of playing with that child. They hear that child uh, has seen whatever movie, and they come in ask you, can I watch this movie? And as a parent, sometimes you have to say, no, I don't think it would be good for you to watch that movie. And you know what the child says next. If they don't say yes, sir, and do what they should, this is usually the response. Their parents let them do this. Their parents let them do this. Why can't I do what's going on around me? So I, I think what Paul is doing here in part is he's trying to call them to not be desensitized to this sinful way of living that is around them. He wants us to be alert to that evil, to, to escape that evil, to understand that the power over that darkness, the power over that night, 
the father over this seed of the serpent, the unbelieving world, he's not looking for their good. The things that father allows his children to do, he's doing so that they'll be destroyed, not so that he can care for them. So when our father gives us commands and calls us to obey, he actually does want to bless us. He wants them to be awake, to understand the, the good life that is found in the commands of God, that is found in obeying God. The, the idea here, this hour, though, is not just about darkness being present. That's been the case since the fall. The idea about this hour also has in mind the fact that Christ has come, the fact that Christ has conquered, the fact that Christ is reigning, and that Christ is soon going to pour out judgment on that unbelieving world. That's, that, that end is so imminent that in 1 John, John tells us that we are living in the last hour. So we live in a unique moment in history where Christ's reign is present, but this darkness is still present. And so this odd mixture that of the moment we live in in redemptive history is supposed to make us more urgently obedient, that we would be aware of this hour and be more urgently obeying the commands that God has laid out in front of us. So how do we properly respond to that? How, how do we live properly in the hour? We have to wake from our sleep. Paul then says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I had mentioned a moment ago that, that I don't think he has in mind conversion when he says uh, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's already said, like I mentioned, that they, they, they are saved. And we see the same thing in Ephesians 2. We have been saved by grace through faith. But I do think he has in mind is is a future salvation. And I, he actually has shown what he means here earlier in the epistle. So if you look over uh, at Romans chapter 5 with me really quick, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. So Romans 5, verse 9, this is what, what the Lord says to Paul. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So that imminent coming judgment is something that for, for us, we stumble in various ways. For us to escape that, Christ has to save us from that. And what Paul has said is that he, sur he surely will. He has justified us already. He will surely save us on the day of wrath. So there's a, there's an, we were talking about this in Sunday school. There's an already aspect to our salvation. We have already been saved from sin and its dominion. We saw that in Romans 6. But we also look forward to a future salvation when that, that day of judgment comes. And Christ will surely save us from that. If you could imagine, yeah, I don't know, if you watched the show, early edition. I don't remember watching it. I remember the commercials, but I know the concept. The guy would get the news ahead of time and go try to help other people with whatever he got. If, if you knew, let's say your neighbor was going to have a catastrophic house fire and their, their house was going to just completely burn down in 24 hours, you'd probably go tell them as soon as you could possibly. You just go straight to them and tell them what's going to happen. Now, if you go tell your, your neighbor what's coming and their response is, okay, so I have 24 hours. I'm pretty sure I can get a nap 
and all my favorite shows in and have some time to spare, you would know that their, their response isn't fitting the severity of the situation. Paul is helping us to see that we live in a moment that calls for urgency and concerted understanding and obedience. And we have to treat this moment as such. We have to live in light of the moment with proper urgency. He says in verse 12, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. When Paul says the night is far gone, I think he's actually building on some points he's already made in this letter. Even going back to chapter 1, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection. And so what that means is Christ has come. I mentioned this. Christ has come. He has conquered. He is now declared the Son of God in power, meaning he has defeated Satan, sin, and death. The, the powers over, over this present darkness have been decidedly defeated by what Christ has accomplished. And the conclusion of that defeat is soon, as, is soon at hand. That's what we had just seen in 11b. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That salvation is from the conclusive judgment. So the night is far gone. They've already been defeated by Christ's coming. The day is at hand. To understand what he means by saying the day is at hand, we're going to look at a few passages. We'll actually go over to Amos 5 in a, in a moment here. But, but first to consider the, this idea of the day being at hand, it might be helpful to just consider some of the things that John says in his gospel account. John lays out that Jesus is the light of the world. That light has shone in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. For all of us who put our faith in Christ, for all of us who put our faith in the light of the world, we are given the right to be sons of God. But those who do not believe remain in darkness because they love their evil deeds. And so those evil deeds that they do not repent of demand a reckoning. And the day of the Lord is this final judgment, is this reckoning. So to, to look a little bit at, at the day of the Lord, let's go over to Amos 5. And we're, we're just going to look at some of the portions from the end of that reading. Uh, one of the things I'll just touch on to, to remind us and help us get into this, this moment and in this context, God said through Amos about the people of Israel, they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. That's likely referring to the prophets God was sending to tell the people to repent. They were not wanting to hear the word of the they were not wanting to repent of their sinful ways, which is then laid out after that verse. And then God addresses how they're probably thinking, starting very specifically starting in verse 18. And the way they're thinking is, we're Israelites. We're not that bad. We can wait for the day of the Lord and expect blessing. And God addresses that way of thinking right here in verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It is, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? 
they think that the day of the Lord is going to mean for them blessing. But because of their way of living in disobedience, their way of living in unrepentant sin, God's saying all you have to expect is darkness. All you have to expect is judgment. God assumes the next part of their argument. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your psalm assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. They're saying, we're Israelites. We offer these sacrifices. But the problem is they don't listen to the word of the Lord. They don't obey the word of the Lord. And so they're, they're saying, Lord, Lord, but he's saying, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the day of the Lord is a reckoning on this way of living in darkness, on this way of living in sin. This uh, light, dark, night, day imagery has its roots in the creation account. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. So that those words, as they're used throughout the rest of the scriptures, they're meant to convey chaos. Everything's dark and chaotic. So when God starts speaking, he's bringing order. He's bringing a, a glorious um, filling to this creation. And the first thing he says is, let there be light. Moving from darkness to light is, is a means of order, of glory, of life. So when things are said in these terms, like we see in Amos 5, to go from darkness out of your light, that is to move from life to death. That is to be uncreated, to enter into death and judgment for living in sin. How do we escape that? How do we avoid that? Well, we have a Savior who has come and filled up obedience where we have been disobedient and went to the cross to take that death and judgment and darkness that we deserve on himself. And we see that, that darkness literally portrayed when Christ is on the cross. During the brightest part of the day, from 12 to 3 p.m., there's darkness over the land. Why? Because the true Adam, who has perfectly obeyed the Father, is taking judgment and death on himself for the sake of his people. He's giving himself up to the decreation of death so that his people might have life in him. And when Christ speaks in that account, I, you can look at Matthew, you can really see this uh, laid out kind of immediately. When Christ speaks in that account, he cries out and gives up his soul to death. But that's not the end of the matter. He speaks, he gives up his soul to death, and then on the third day, dawn hits, that grave is empty, it is forever empty because Christ is risen. There is newness of life to be found in him. He has brought about a new creation in his resurrection. Not coincidentally, Jesus Christ is raised on the first day when God had said, let there be light. There is light of the world to be found in our risen Savior. It is by him taking on our sin, taking on our judgment, taking on our darkness, going to the death, going to the cross to die, 
to be decreated, that we are recreated in Christ. We are given newness of life, that we have eternal light and hope in him. So if you'll look back over at Romans 13 with me, this good news demands a response, doesn't it not? Paul says, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. We need to be rid of the works of darkness. We are to cast them off. That, that is not a soft, squishy photo book term. I got to think of word books for my little boys. This isn't one of those words. This is get rid of it. This is, this is decisive removal. When Paul says, let us cast off the works of darkness, he is not giving us room for our common excuses. We sin and we get confronted by the word or confronted by another believer. And what do we say? Well, that's my personality. There's no room for that. Well, look at how other people act. There's no room for that. Look, look at all the good things that I've done. There's no room for that. We need to cast off the works of darkness. All those excuses, I mean, we saw essentially all of them in Amos 5. God has nothing to do with our excuses. He calls us to be holy as he is holy. So we are to cast off the works of darkness. We are to look to the standard that God has given us. And the standard he has given us is to give our bodies as a living sacrifice to him, holy and acceptable. That is the standard. Everything we are in full holiness, fully sacrificed to God, just as our Savior did. That is the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard. God's word is the standard. Any of these other standards, these excuses that we come up with, that cheapen what God has said, these are of the devil. He is the power over this present darkness. And when we try to change God's standard. We are following Satan, not God. Rest assured. So when we think in terms of what is our biggest problem, it's, it's, not, it's not other people and how they're treating us. It is not uh, the hard things that we're going through. It's not what we don't have. Biggest problem we can find right here it is the sin that remains. This is our biggest problem. Paul says, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That, that phrase, armor of light, there's something we should be thinking when we see armor. We should be thinking warfare. This is, this is battle. This is to be treated with seriousness, and our sin is to be treated with severity. John Owen's phrase is really helpful. We have to be killing our sin, or it will be killing us. This is warfare. This is battle. When Paul says here, put on the armor of light, if you look down at verse 14, that same phrase is used, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we are putting on the armor of light, ultimately what we're doing is we're putting on Jesus Christ. So when we take up the shield of faith, who is our faith in? Our, our, our righteousness flows from that faith, and it comes from Christ. When we put on the helmet of salvation, we, we just saw it explicitly in Romans 5. Our salvation comes from Jesus Christ. And we pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
Now, Bible is about Jesus. So every, every aspect of the armor of light, every aspect of the armor of God is to make us more like Jesus Christ ultimately. We kind of see a reverse example of this with Goliath. So when, when Goliath is described in the book of Samuel, he's described as having this armor that's made out of scales. What does he look like? He looks like a snake. He's got this armor made out of scales. It makes him look like a snake. And then how does he speak and how does he act? Like the serpent. So when David comes into that, that battle, he's not wearing scaly armor or anything like that. What he's doing is he's putting his trust in the Lord. And then how does he act? How does he speak? He speaks like one who's following the Lord. He's acting like a true image bearer. And in, in the strength of God, he defeats Goliath. So in a similar way, we are to put on this armor of light, to put on Jesus Christ, and to fight in his strength. We're, we're not the, the hero in the battle. It, and it's good that we're not. Christ is at work in us, though, so that we can win the battle, and so we should fight valiantly. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. That phrase or the word there used for walk, that's the same word that Paul had used in Romans 6 to talk about how we have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. So Paul's saying here, let us walk properly as in the daytime. That's, it's, it's essentially a, saying the same thing but a different way. We should walk as those who are part of this new creation that has come about in Christ. We should not walk in darkness and in sin. We should walk in the glory of God, in obedience to Christ, as those who have been brought into newness of life in him. He then gives us a, a contrast. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual, sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Now, it could be easy. I'm thinking about times I've read this verse. I've probably bolted right through this. Because it starts with not walking in orgies and drunkenness. And those sins sound outlandish. And it can be easy to say, well, I'm not walking in that. And Lord willing, we're not. If we are, we should repent. But if, if we look at those first two sins and think, well, I'm not walking in orgies and drunkenness, so I must not be what's in mind here, I think we're very sorely missing Paul's point here. These sins are coupled and then set up in parallel. And I think it's to convey a point to us. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Well, where do orgies come from? They come from sexual immorality. And the sexually immoral are those who tend to mistreat others around them, those who tend to quarrel. What is drunkenness a result of? It's a, it's a result of living in pleasures and living in sensuality. And where does sensuality come from? A desire for ourselves, regardless of God and others. It's, it stems from Jealousy. Orgies and drunkenness flow from sexual immorality and sensuality, and quarreling and jealousy are the root of all of it. We might not be walking in orgies and drunkenness, but I can guarantee we're all dealing with jealousy and quarreling. And if we're not careful, these sins will grow into full-blown, gross, terrible things. Because they are, even in seed form. That's exactly what they are, even at this level. Given um, 
what Paul has commanded. Uh, earlier here in this in this passage to to wake from sleep, I think he's coupling these together to make his audience more awake. These big sins come from the little sins. Therefore, be urgent. Be urgent when you deal with your sins. Um, and we we would see that urgency if, if it were a different situation. Uh, if you went over, let, let's say you go over to another neighbor's house, and they say, welcome to our house. We just got a brand new pet baby viper. It's somewhere in the house. If you see it, I'm sure you'll have fun looking at it. You, you, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Those things can be venomous as babies. What do you tell the neighbor to do? Get rid of it. If it if it doesn't kill you now as a baby, it's only going to get more dangerous as it grows, and it'll more than likely kill you later, if not your whole family. We know when things are urgent and need to be dealt with, and sin is the chief of those. Paul has said much about how our worship of God, in chapter 12 and 13 specifically, our worship of God is directly related to how we treat his image bearers how we love the church, how we bless those who persecute us, how we submit to the government, how we love our neighbor as ourselves. So we have to be concerted in our efforts to love other people if we want to render proper worship to God. We have to have minds that are renewed by God, and then we have to apply those renewed minds to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all as we seek to treat other people in a way that is consistent with how Christ has loved us. And given given the the context of of relationship, and then also what he's talking about here immediately in verse 13 about sexual immorality, I think a a quick word about marriage um, would be fitting. It, It can be very easy for us, especially in... A situation of, of darkness like we have around us to get mixed up into quarreling and jealousy in our marriage. But that has no place. We should be seeking to outdo one another in showing honor in our marriages to our spouses. We should give no room for sexual immorality and sensuality. We should enjoy sex within the confines of marriage and understand that sex isn't the problem. The problem is lust and immorality, the deviation from what God has said and given that is good. One further note about these sins. Well, I'm going to actually talk about marriage for one more moment and tie it into this next point. Our marriages are designed to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reflect his relationship with the church. So our proper application of marriage should spur others on to worship. And that's that's precisely the point I want to conclude on. These sins are a matter of worship. That first coupling, orgies and drunkenness, the readers would have quickly associated that with idolatry. There's a specific uh, Greek god, Bacchus, that they would have really associated that with. So I think Paul is both trying to wake them up by driving these sins home to the heart, but also trying to drive home to their heart that their sin is a worship problem. It is an idolatry problem. 
whether it's the full-blown orgies and drunkenness or our quarreling and jealousy, whatever level it's going on at, it is worshiping the creature rather than the creator, and it is idolatry. So what's the solution? Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. When we sin, just like we talked about, that's a worship problem. We've worshiped our way into sin. So what's the solution? We have to worship our way out of sin. How do, how do we do that? We have to hear the word of God. We have to study the word of God. We have to pray the word of God. We have to sing the word of God. We have to share the word of God so that we might honor the one who is the word. It is by our knowing Christ and becoming like Christ and worshiping Christ that we are brought out of sinful worship and brought into right and proper God-honoring worship. And this should be a delight to us especially as we consider what our sins would merit us outside of Christ. We talked about this earlier as well. The Psalms specifically tell us that those who worship idols become like them. And we were looking at this from 1 Samuel. Those idols are lifeless. They end up as dust and rubble. If we live in idolatry, we will end up the same way. And death, darkness, like chaff that the wind blows away. So what do we do? We put on the Lord Jesus Christ because we were made to worship. We were made to reflect glory. We were made to be like God. And that expression has come to its fullness in Jesus Christ. We're to put him on to reflect glory and greatness. And so when we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, notice the power that comes with that. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That last word of the verse there in the ESV, desires, that's actually the same word used for lusts back in Romans 1.24, talking about how the unbelieving world is given up to their lusts. They cannot help but sin. What Paul's saying here is put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision to gratify its desires. Christ at work in us makes us able to not sin. And instead of sinning, we can fulfill and obey the commands that have been given here. We can offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and accepted. We can love and serve the church. We can bless those who persecute us. We can submit to the government. We can love our neighbor as ourselves and fulfill the law through our Savior who has fulfilled the law on our behalf. We can do this because Christ is in us. To close, I, I want to just revisit this, this theme that, he, that Paul's been using in the passage of, of light and dark and night and day. And going back to the, the creation account, on the seventh day in Genesis 2, when God rests, it's, it's unique in that there's no evening and morning marking off the seventh day. The first six days all had evening and morning, the whatever day in the order. 
The seventh day does not have that. And why is it? Because God wants us to enter into eternal rest in his presence. And and then the answer to that we see in Revelation 22. In Revelation 22, John writes for us that there is going to be no night in the new creation. But the very next thing that is said there is that there's going to be no sun as well. So how how does that work? How is there no night, but there's also no sun? Well, the glory of God, which we see face to face in the new creation, is going to be our light so that we can enter into eternal Sabbath rest in the presence of God through what Christ has accomplished, through the one who is making all things new. So do not let this present darkness distract you from the glories of God and the riches of our blessed inheritance in Jesus Christ. To close, I'm going to pray a portion of Psalm 16 for us. Let's pray together. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Father, we have a propensity toward idolatry. We have a propensity to worship the creature rather than the creator. But I am thankful that we can cling to our Savior who has fulfilled this psalm, who has denied Satan, who has obeyed your will perfectly, and who has borne our sins in his body on the tree, and has risen and gives us righteousness. Thank you for our Savior, who now gives us strength so that we do not have to follow idols, that we can reject them and instead worship you. And Father, we're thankful for what you have in store for us. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And Father, you are our inheritance. And we are thankful that you have given us belonging in your family, that we would be your children through your son. So we pray that your spirit would continue to give us strength, continue to make us like our Savior, to continue to equip us with the armor to fight obediently for your honor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.